Welcome to the Ecolit Project. I'm Nicole. And I'm April. We're graduate students at West Virginia University, and we study Ecolit. That's eco-criticism and environmental literature. We open this episode, episode four, by discussing our natural resource, Timothy Morton's Ecology Without Nature. In our second segment, The Literary Mind, we'll go deeper into two texts this time. The novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick and Ridley Scott's film adaptation, Blade Runner. Our final segment, Finding Footholds, will seek out ways in which we can apply these insights to real-world concerns, to issues that we come across in our day-to-day lives. So this is it, the, the last reading episode of season one. Are you ready? Let's go. Morton is a romanticist, sometimes a post-romantic, and he has written on a wide spectrum of topics from animals to objects. But one of his best and best-known works is the 2008 Ecology Without Nature, Rethinking Environmental Aesthetics. The overarching claim of Morton's book is that nature, or rather our highly aestheticized image of nature, ultimately impedes our ability to make sound, ecologically responsible decisions. The nature of the book's title refers not so much to trees and rocks and wildlife. Obviously, those things exist. We're not getting rid of those. But rather, Morton uses the word nature to refer to this sort of abstracted idea that we have of nature as a thing that is separate somehow from culture. This season we've been reading about seemingly straightforward dichotomies, machine garden, city country, literal, metaphorical, and each book has sought to sort of break down those dichotomies to show how they're more complicated than A versus B. It's more A and B and a whole lot of murk and muck in between. Morton frames a new dichotomy, one we're probably not even aware of. It's there, but it hasn't been named before. Ecology, nature, which really sublimates into real ideal. Of course, by fixating on the ideal that nature consists of trees and rocks and wildlife, we tend to overlook the very real presence and the, uh, I almost want to say, like the value of things like dandelions and garbage foraging animals and plutonium and other less romantic objects that actually make up our ecology. Morton writes that, quote, the idea of nature is getting in the way of properly ecological forms of culture, philosophy, politics, and art. This is the central problem that he's grappling with in Ecology Without Nature. So this book, Ecology Without Nature, is the first installment in what might be regarded as Morton's eco-critical trilogy, the second, 2012's The Ecological Thought. He calls it the prequel to Ecology Without Nature, and a few years later, 2016, Dark Ecology emerged. 
So reading recommendation, they're all fantastic, I think, but Ecology Without Nature is definitely the gateway. Ecological thought and dark ecology extend the theory and the application, but Without Nature is at the center and it's the best place to start. Quote, the goal of ecology without nature is to think through an argument about what we mean by the word environment itself. In a way, Morton is taking the work that thinkers like Williams and Marx were doing, um, Williams with the idea of country and city, Marx with the idea of wilderness and garden, and he's examining it on a different plane. He's looking at these dichotomies and giving us this sort of cross-section of what is driving those conversations. Um, these are all, and if you think about it, they're all different iterations of nature. So we're tackling nature itself. As you said, it comes down to decomposing our ideals. Where eco-criticism is concerned, that ideal is often nature itself. It's a really productive approach, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Morton has certainly been a geologic force and anthropocentric presence in the eco-critical scene, if you will. We've talked about how influential Lakoff and Johnson have been for both of us, and Morton's writing, it was actually some of the first to really draw me into eco-criticism, maybe because his romanticism doesn't end in the Romantic era. Right. He begins the book by saying that these Romantic era figures will feature throughout, of course, because they are his primary subjects of study. But if he wants to talk about Tolkien or Blade Runner or Aldo Leopold, he gives them the same detailed scholarly work over that he gives to, say, Wordsworth or Heidegger. We may start out in the Lake District, but then we find ourselves on a road trip through the Shire and dystopian L.A. all the way over to Sand County. Mm-hmm. So along that way, um, best line? Oh, from Morton's book? Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a lot in here. Let me think. Um, I guess if I had to choose a line, it would be this one. The task becomes to love the disgusting, inert, and meaningless. Ecological politics must constantly and ruthlessly reframe our view of the ecological. What was outside yesterday will be inside today. We identify with the monstrous thing. As you know, Nicole, I just finished a project on matters of invasive rhetoric and our ideas of native versus non-native species which actually kind of correlates to this idea of natural versus non-natural. To be non-native is just to be natural but out of place. So I actually quoted this line in my paper. Um, I think that this approach, this identifying with the monstrous thing, really challenges us to rethink the way that we conceive of and actually interact with those parts of our ecology that we don't perceive as natural. I don't know, it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Do you remember the other day when we were sitting at the coffee shop and there was this fly that kept buzzing around and landing on the window next to us? I do remember. <laughs> I thought it, he, the fly, was a 
good conclusion to our talk. Morton ends his book with William Blake's The Fly. He puts it in here. Little fly, thy summer's play, my thoughtless hand hath brushed away. Am not I a fly like thee? And art not thou a man like me? Then am I a happy fly. And we just kind of were watching the fly, and it kind of was landing on us at some point. We're just looking at him. I kept looking at it and thinking, okay, so is this fly? Is this nature finding its way into this urban space that we're occupying? I mean, it should be, right? I, a fly is, despite its domesticated name, the house fly, it's a wild animal. We don't tend to think of flies as wild animals. I mean, we haven't domesticated it. We have really no control over it at all. It's one of the wildest wild animals from that distance because no matter how much we try to brush it away, it keeps coming back. It really doesn't care about our interests. It's kind of, it doesn't serve any purpose for us. It's just doing its own thing. Um, I guess it's not that it's not nature. It's just it doesn't really fit into our aesthetic of the natural. Right. It's it's hard to think of the fly as the arrival of grand nature into an otherwise human-dominated space. It's just, I don't know, it's just part of the local ecology, I guess. And what was your favorite line? Oh, for me, it's when Morton says, quote, I consider the literary criticism of environmental literature itself to be an example of environmental art. I really love that for a couple of reasons. First, I think I think that you can read a lot of these romantic poets, these ecological writers, as almost performing ego-criticism themselves because they are so cognizant of language as constructing what they're seeing. So there is that sort of participation and world building or fighting against the world building there. But I also really like how it situates itself in the reason why I wanted to get into eco-criticism. I was drawn to just how tangible, material, real world the field is, especially as a grounding for some of the more abstract theories that live there. It's sort of like what we were talking about last time, I guess, the how we both engage environmentally in different ways. It isn't all academic journals and conference papers, eco-criticism. There's some real-world work behind it as well. And it speaks to why so many people in our field go there. We want to be a part of this world, not just the literary world, but the real world. And this can be a way in to talking about it. And as much as Morton distrusts world building, maybe we can talk more about that process in a moment. I think the eco-critic really engages in world building as much as storytelling. As for Morton's story, he's drawing a lot from ideas that we usually think of as counterintuitive to the environmentalist discourse melancholy, consumerism, and the city, when actually we need to embrace these things because they are 
our ecology. They're not ugly outliers beyond the ecology in nature. He calls our tendency to pull away from these things, he calls it beautiful soul syndrome, and that's a really crucial part of his eco-critique. It's a term that he's borrowing from Hegel, and he describes it like this, quote, The beautiful soul washes his or her hands of the corrupt world, refusing to admit how in this abstemiousness and distaste he or she participates in the creation of that world. The world where a soul holds all beliefs and ideas at a distance. The only ethical option is to muck in. You mentioned world building, and it sounds like beautiful soul syndrome is a direct result of world building. And when we say world building, we're talking about that process of aestheticizing, of building up an ethos around something. It's the process in which ecology becomes nature. And it's a process of elaborating on the physical place of naturalizing some things and rejecting other things as unnatural. This is what nature is. That is not. Things are this way because they've always been. For the beautiful soul, when the world doesn't seem to add up to what we think of as nature, it becomes this damaged thing. Essentially, the book is an invitation to see through this ideal, this version of nature. First understanding that it is an ideal, then to engage in this radical acceptance of what's actually there. And it's important that we can't think of ourselves as standing outside of this process, seeing through it and critiquing it from some privileged place out there. This seems to be Morton's critique of eco-critique, that so much of it maintains that distance between the subject, I, and its object, nature. He works toward breaking down that distinction. We're all objects. We're all strange strangers. And it's for this reason that we absolutely must be forgiving. We need to be gentle. I think that one of the ways he tries to convey this forgiveness is by showing it's not like he's exempting himself from it. I mean, he says that even Hegel had some of the beautiful soul within, and he doesn't condemn it. And he shows that there is a difference between those two processes. Instead, he is just questioning it. Well, and you can't condemn it, can you? That's one of the claims he makes, is that you can't beat up on the beautiful soul because in doing so, you yourself become the beautiful soul. The problem with the beautiful soul, it seems, is that it doesn't want to get its hands dirty. As Morton says, we have to be willing to muck in. And part of that mucking in, that radical acceptance he calls for, means accepting the beautiful soul for what it is, accepting that we ourselves may have very likely do have something of the beautiful soul in us, too. It's a continual process of breaking down distances wherever they crop up. We're all part of the mesh. We're all in this mesh together. Dark Ecology gets over the dilemma of the beautiful soul, not by turning the other into the self, but perversely, by leaving things the way they are. In order to be itself, 
Forgiveness would not expect the frog to turn into a prince as soon as we kissed it. To forgive, then, would be a fundamentally ecological act, an act that redefined ecology in excess of all its established concepts, an act of radically being with the other. And being here, being literally on this earth, would entail a need for forgiveness and equally radical assumption that whatever is there is our responsibility and ultimately our fault. Philip K. Dick's 1968 sci-fi neo-noir adventure, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, tells of a day in the life of two men, Rick Deckard, bounty hunter for the San Francisco Police Department, who finds and retires, or kills, yeah, <laughs> destroys synthetic humanoids, androids, or Andes, as they're called, for money. And J.R. Isidore, a man mentally damaged by the radioactive fallout from World War Terminus, who lives alone in an abandoned high-rise apartment building outside of town. Deckard has been assigned the task of finding six Nexus 6 model androids who have escaped their enslavement on Mars and are trying to blend in here on 2021 Earth, several of them by hiding out in Isidore's building. The only way for Deckard to identify them is by administering the Voigt-Kampf test, which measures their physiological responses to a series of taboo-laced scenarios, subtly nuanced, but such that would cause a human test subject to recoil. So it's a lot of information to take in at first. Think of what your response would be to this scenario. Almost everyone else has emigrated to Mars. You are still here, and the longer you stay here, the greater your risk of degeneration and getting lost in the dust. In his introduction, Morton describes our current environment in much the same way that one could summarize Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Quote, The sky is falling, the globe is warming, the ozone hole persists, people are dying of radiation poisoning and other toxic agents, species are being wiped out, thousands per year. End quote. Following World War Terminus, the only humans remaining on Earth are those like Isidore, who have been diagnosed unfit for the new colony, and those who, like Deckard, have chosen to stay and tend the damaged planet. The uncanniness is like that of the android, so human-like, but not quite human. This is Earth, but it's so unearthly. There are virtually no plants left, only withering weeds, and... The remaining animals are so rare and valuable that they've become the ultimate status symbol. That's really the only reason why, at the beginning of the day, at the beginning of the book, Deckard gets out of bed, the promise of earning enough money to buy a real animal to replace his artificial sheep. This is what drives him to pursue the Nexus 6, even though he's beginning to feel ethically ambiguous about the Voigt-Kampf definition of humanity and his job, which essentially boils down to enforcing it. Part of Deckard's ambivalence stems from his budding feelings for Rachel Rosen, a Nexus 6 designed by her manufacturer to seduce bounty hunters like Deckard and deter them from their work of retiring their android products. He knows this, but that doesn't stop him from empathizing with her. Let's return to Isidore for a moment. 
A couple of chapters into the book, we see that there's this parallel between the two characters, between Deckard and Isidore. As with Deckard, we meet Isidore while he's getting ready to go to work, and also like Deckard, there's something a little bit questionable about his job. He drives a truck for a mechanic, which operates under the guise of a veterinary service, picking up electric animals, like Deckard's sheep, and bringing them in when they get quote-unquote sick, or when they need repair. Whereas Deckard finds himself drawn to Rachel, Isidore finds connection with Pris, a Nexus 6 android, who is actually the same model as Rachel, so they're identical. Before he leaves for work on this particular morning, the highly empathetic J.R. Isidore meets Pris, who has moved into his building, and he agrees to help her and her android friends hide out there. These main characters' paths cross when Deckard goes to Isidore's building to retire the androids. Once this work is complete, he considers retiring himself, that is, retiring from his work of retiring robots that are almost too human. The story peaks when Deckard retreats from the city to the wilderness, at this point a desolate wasteland. First, I just want to describe how this wilderness scene, it's actually a return to the pre-romantic wilderness that Marx is talking about. Not this beautiful escape from corrupt civilization, but the hideous wilderness that's that can be very treacherous and dangerous to humans. It's not a place that you go to recover. It's where you escape from. And that's shown by just how dusty and polluted it is, not this pristine verdant forest he uses as an example when he's giving the test. So in a way, he is a romantic for seeking it out and seeking something there. But he experiences what he thinks is a permanent fusion with the quasi-deity Mercer, himself as Mercer, So Mercerism, can we spend a moment there talking about that? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so Mercerism, everybody is following this new, it's unclear whether it's a theology or just a secular philosophy that they're all abiding by, but it is based on this ethos of empathy for other living things, even the lowliest fly and spider, it says. And it just has this notion that the way to be the most human is to respond to the animal, which is why so many people choose to have animals. But a lot of people have kind of begun to abuse this philosophy. There's this, well, I think one of the ways that it's best represented is by the technology associated with it. There's a creation called the empathy box. You can kind of wire yourself into it, hold on, and all of your emotions are going to be fused with Mercer and with the collective. Everybody else who is wired in, you can share their joy, their grief, their pain, and you can transmit yours to them. If you are overwhelmed by an emotion, you can share it with them. When they, You can also receive a temporary sense of what everyone else is feeling. But a lot of people, I think it was originally created as sort of a tool to enhance your feelings, but a lot of people are starting to almost use it as an emotional crutch instead of actually feeling. Yeah, I feel like the sort of ritualistic aspect of it and the communal aspect of it really makes it feel more like a theology, perhaps, than a philosophy. 
Right, especially the way that they talk about Mercer himself. I think some ways Mercer sort of could work as a stand-in for the idea of nature and kind of what Morton is doing with that idea, especially toward the end when he's sort of unveiled and they find that um, maybe he's not quite what they thought he was, that their ideal sort of crumbles at that point. Mm-hmm. But then Mercerism is still there. Mercer is still real. He's just different then. Yeah, it's kind of like the aesthetic of maybe the old world. We think of it as, you know, very pure, very pristine, untouched. And there seems to be this idea of the untouchable Mercer. And people are thinking, we can never achieve this. It's gone. That earth is gone. But we can reach out to it through Mercer. And then people realize that it's a bit of a false construction. And... Mm -hmm. Some people are very disoriented in their world. Well, we don't have this anymore. Now what? And other people continue to cling. Yeah. Well, and some people decide to accept Mercer for what they find he really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some value to that, I think. Um, Deckard, of course, has this encounter with him. And following that encounter, he finds a toad, a species long since declared extinct. Um, a gift from Mercer, perhaps. And Deckard brings the toad home to his wife, who points out very quickly how actually it's it's not a wild toad like he thought it was. It's another electric animal, not real. And there's this moment afterwards where he just seems to process it. She wonders, should I have told you this? Would it have been better? And he says, no, it's better than I know. The electric things have their lives, too, paltry as they are, is what he says. And in doing so, he is accepting the toad for what it is. Like you say, the way people were accepting Mercer for what he is. Um, and that there is a life to it in its own. And it's left a little unclear what exactly his move forward will be. He's still the bounty hunter, but he has some new insight into the living creature that has become his prey. So, science fiction is a genre all about world building, but noir fiction is a different story. There's usually a lot of obscurity, information being slipped to you slowly through dialogue rather than this introductory structure, and you always have to sort of question it because it's typical for the narrator to be an unreliable narrator, very gray in terms of their morality. So this off version of our world, it's a little jarring. I'd say when we first encounter it, they're all engaged in their own brands of world building. And they're being so noirishly, <laughs> that's, that's a word now, uh, noirishly incomplete shows the incomplete nature of the building. And, I mean, look at it with Isidore is maybe a good example of that. He lives in a building that is literally falling apart, and he's one of the most faithful adherents to some of these ideas, and it's crumbling around him. Mercerism, for sure. The Voight-Kant test is maybe another side to that coin. Sydney's animal catalog, which kind of taxonomizes which species are more valuable than others, which ones are present and aren't. They're all creating the same ethos of what it means to be human and what should be excluded from that existence. And this is clearly one of the factors that makes sci-fi novels and movies 
if this plot sounds familiar, it's probably because of the 1982 movie Blade Runner, which is based off of Electric Sheep. Um, this is one of the factors that make these stories so interesting. It's not another planet. It isn't an imaginary realm. It's our own Earth, the very Earth on which I'm standing right now. Yet it's not the familiar Earth that we know as home. And along those same lines, these androids aren't just others we're dealing with. They are others who look a lot like us. They look like us, but they're not us. Or are they? That question, I think, is central to the story. Whether or not we're meant to regard the android as alive. I mean, I think Isidore does. Oh, he definitely does. And by the end of the book, Deckard seems to at least begin to feel that way as well. And in the movie, the director, Ridley Scott, he plays around a lot with images that make us ask, is Deckard a replicant? They're called replicants in the movie. I think that by that point, we're all feeling a little less certain of that distinction between human as alive and android as not alive. Yeah, and... That's a very Mortonian point, especially towards the end of his book, that question you're raising, maybe the androids are us, or maybe are we them? Am not I, and Andy like thee, and art not thou a human like me? When the difference between life and non-life, like human and non-human, becomes so minute as to be detectable, and then only questionably so through highly sophisticated instruments like a void conf test, then what really is that difference? That's a good question. And this is important, I think. Does that difference justify the differences in the way we treat living versus perceived non-living beings? It's perfectly lawful, sanctioned even, to gun down an android Deckard, in fact, gets really angry when anyone questions that, saying that he's never murdered anyone in his life. And yet, just across that tiny gap, a gap, as you said, only detectable by Deckard's Voight-Kampf instruments, is the human. To gun down a human is the most atrocious crime. Yeah, and his continued frustration with that, um, a lot of the critics who've been reading it, when I read his name for the first time, Rick Deckard. I thought that that was sort of a stretching out of Philip K. Dick's last name, in a sense. But a lot of people have actually pointed out that Dick, that Deckard could be a modernization of Descartes, Rene Descartes, mm-hmm. who had this... He was continually questioning what it means to be human versus the automaton. So that's why we struggle nowadays to understand what exactly he meant about separating the human from the animal and how animals... He almost regarded them as these machine-like creatures, not reasoning creatures like us. And Deckard's journey is sort of updating that. Although I guess being human doesn't completely get you out of the muck. Isidore, who seems in some ways to be as human as they come, especially in terms of humanity, as we would typically think of it in a moral sense, um, almost hyperhuman. Yeah, although he's probably the most empathetic character in the book. Empathy, of course, being what ultimately makes the human human. 
he's considered by other people to be somehow a lesser form of human, not android exactly, but also not quite human enough to immigrate to the new colony. He is quite literally left in the dust. Absolutely. And it feels like such a waste because he has so many really unique philosophical musings about the dust, but at some point he says there's no one who he can compare notes with. So it's almost because he didn't meet this one standard. Just like the androids, they don't pass the Voight-Kampff test, so they don't count as human. He doesn't pass this one measure of intelligence, this IQ test, so he's completely written off as unintelligent. But he has some really creative views on his world. Um, interesting that they're they're all boxed in and abused just in different ways mm-hmm. different boxes and different abuses but Deckard himself kind of realizes this as well the android quote had been modified to become the mobile donkey engine of a colonization program end quote that was one of the biggest pulls of going to Mars, everybody, every family that goes, you're going to get your own personal Android to use and whatever service you want. They could till your fields, man your store. This is not unlike the dehumanization of poor laborers and the dismissal of their dusty ailment and the dehumanization of that process. Um, The coal miner trapped in the dust, the pre-special condition of black lung, was worth less to the coal company than the donkey that was pulling the cart of coal out of the mine, which I feel like Dick was maybe gesturing to that a little bit. His choices of animals are always really worth looking at. Um, The donkey is listed as one of Mercer's most sacred animals. Um, And the androids, the ultimate incentive of emigration, the android servant as carrot, the radioactive fallout as stick. So it just seems to be relating humans to the donkey again, just this idea of carrot and stick move where we want you to take these resources with you. It is perhaps this double nature that makes the donkey so sacred to Mercer. So the post-World War II population, I don't know if they would really get the saying treated like an animal, but it says a lot. So it's interesting that Isidore is the only character, except maybe Paul Resch, the other bounty hunter who Deckard works with, who seems to have genuine empathy for animals. Oh, squirrel Bucky. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. If you think about the way most people interact with their animals in this book, it's very mechanical. Mm-hmm. There's something a little bit uncanny about it, even. They don't pet their animals. There's actually very little tactile interaction. Mostly, mostly they just look at them. It's almost like having a trophy car parked in the driveway. You mentioned the Sydney's Guide to Animal Values that Deckard carries around with him. It's almost like the Kelly Blue Book for cars. Like, if you need to know the base worth of your car, just pull out the Blue Book. If you need to know the going rate for a common garden spider, just pull out the Sydneys. Right. They want their neighbors to see. It's like the dream of the electric sheep is so American dreamy. Like, there's a car. There's my swimming pool. There's my sheep. And Deckard is the perfect protagonist for this story because 
I don't think he fully buys into this world that's built around him. I mean, yeah, he wants the sheep, or he wants what the sheep represents, and that represents him going to work and being able to bring this sheep home, providing the sheep, in a sense. But he is, he feels like he's failing at keeping this sheep. It's almost like he's showing us that we're not built like that. We're not built for this world, which we ourselves have built. Somehow we've almost constructed it so that we don't fit. We can't make ourselves fit in this new machine. think about it, there are actually a lot of electric sheep out there in our world today. Um, and I wonder how much Philip K. Dick had to do with that. Um, we have Dolly, the clone sheep, um, Mareep, the Pokemon Go electric sheep, Pokemon. And um, you pointed out the pixelated sheep in Minecraft. Mm-hmm. I came across a story online recently about an art installation by Jean-Luc Cornet called Tribute that consisted of sheep sculpted from old telephones. Old tabletop rotary phones formed the heads, the fleece was made from old coiled phone cords, and the legs and feet were the receivers. And I immediately thought of our friend Mr. Deckard and his pet sheep. You're right, there's something really intriguing about the idea of a mechanized sheep, of all the animals, a sheep. That's such an interesting image because we think of the rotary phone nowadays, and that's kind of this retro, old-fashioned, obsolete technology. But Nostalgia it's, that it inspires in us. Yeah, but it's kind of, it's made so futuristic. And the novel has that quality because it came out in 68, kind of right around when that wave of environmentalism was going on. So there's just this real future throwback time delineation that's going on mm-hmm. which you see in the movie too when you're looking at the futuristic cars which actually look like cars from the 80s but they're flying oh yeah I mean, that was a whole thing about I think it was known as I don't know if it's the Blade Runner curse or the Blade Runner phenomenon but if you look at there's this theory that if a brand was in the movie it just something happened to it it crashed um I think Kodak was in there, Atari, Pan Am, Coca-Cola's in there, but there's kind of this, Caroline Kepnes did this whole reading of it as able to be, you know, classic, but also very modern. So it's mm-hmm. kind of got this universal bubble around it, mm-hmm. but all of those other brands, you're right, they're, they're so 80s. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about how the sheep are so very associated with the pastoral, we've talked a lot about the pastoral in our past couple of episodes, country and city, machine and the garden, and Morton quotes Karl Marx talking about how false that image is. First the laborers are driven from the land, then the sheep arrive, is what Marx says. So there's kind of, the sheep are always natural, but in that world-building, naturalized way, um, It's fitting that the story begins with and is named after the mechanized sheep, sort of like a machine in the garden. The sheep sort of epitomizes the domesticated animal, an animal that is 
utterly dependent on humans to keep them safe. It's almost like mechanizing the sheep is the next step in the process of domestication. So garden, machine, natural, unnatural, they're the same, really. Yeah, so the idea that people are continually afraid of their machine breaking down, that's why people like Isidore are employed because people, they don't want the image to break down. That's what I like so much about K. Dick's writing. Um, so many of my favorite films, Soylent Green, The Minority Report, and for sure Blade Runner, are based off of Philip K. Dick's stories. So that's why I first read Electric Sheep and that experience it was. The book was better. That's hard. They're so... They're very different stories in some ways. Um, the plot is the same, but it's almost like they're different worlds. You know, the 1968 novel, it kind of has that rotary phone quality of old technology that's given a futuristic feel versus, you know, Blade Runner. Again, it kind of has this very 80s feel to it that is at once futuristic and nostalgic, but they're different eras that we're drawing from. Um, mm -hmm. So the novel is so Pulp Fiction and noirish, Gnarly. Gnarly. <laughs> this is the 80s. Yeah, very 80s, um, which I love, but I love detective novels, um, and I know that it's not for, for everyone. Yeah, I actually listened to the audio version of the book, which is, you know, we have the movie, and we have the, the print book, and then we have the audio book. And I feel like the reader's inflections and intonations really conjured up an image of Deckard that was perhaps more along the lines of Harrison Ford's portrayal than I might have imagined him if I had simply read the print version. Deckard is, I think, less striking in the book. I mean, Isidore is surprised when he meets him. He says that he doesn't look like a bounty hunter. Yeah, I think he says he looks like a desk clerk. Or <laughs> yeah. Um, but Ford's portrayal of Deckard is, oh, let's face it, he's pretty slick. Too slick? <laughs> Maybe a little too slick. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, and I think that that's something where, again, there's genre expectations. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I took a class that was all about the noir novel, so I kind of like that image, you know, and I was sort of prepped for that. Ooh, I, I'm familiar with this, so I could kind of bring some world building in there, but I remember you said you were reading it. It sounded too much like the guy's got his feet up on his desk. <laughs> I pictured him laying back in his seat with his feet on his desk and a cigar. Yeah, press um, the button. Yeah. Bring me a cup of coffee. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, um, and it just, it all lined up really well this summer. We knew we wanted to cover Timothy Morton, and he writes, he writes a lot about Blade Runner. And... I don't know, I liked it too, and I really liked the book. I'd read it before, and I was actually writing about this book this summer, and April and I, we were in a summer class together. and We were. It was a six-week study of the sublime aesthetic, which is all about being drawn to something not conventionally beautiful. Maybe it's actually uncomfortable or even dangerous. It was a lot of fun, and it was right in our and in Morton's era, the enlightened and romantics. So we are all very enlightened and very romantic. 
always so. I think we both found opportunities to write about topics that had been on our minds lately. Yeah, I'd chosen to write about electric sheep, and April, you were doing sort of a Mortonian case study in case for the non-native bird? On starlings, yes. That was the paper I mentioned earlier on invasive rhetoric and the questionable actions it seems to justify. I have to say, after the class was over, we read each other's papers, and we were... I don't know, on the same page, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think that was natural. There's actually a lot of overlap in the way we think about both starlings and androids as not quite natural. And as we've mentioned, we tend to use natural as the qualifier for whether or not something is deserving of our protection or just our, our kindness of human decency. Right. Morton actually addresses this overlap between animals and androids in his book. You mentioned that starlings and androids are not quite natural. They're also both not quite human. I wrote about starlings as being more human than most animals in a way. I mean, they gravitate toward human-dominated spaces. These are not birds that you'll find in the deepest wilderness. They mimic human speech and... A lot of the environmental complaints that we wage against them are things that we do ourselves, only to a much greater degree. And I think with starlings, they're showing us this sort of grittier side of nature, that side of nature we don't like to see. They bring that right into our backyards. We worry about them displacing other birds from their nesting sites, but is that really what the average person is concerned about? Because we humans do a whole lot more of that work than starlings do. In fact, there have been studies recently that show that this complaint against starlings has been greatly exaggerated. Um, For those of you who don't know, in a former life, I was a licensed songbird rehabilitator. And my mentor had this saying that always stuck with me. She said, nature is always beautiful, but it ain't always pretty. And there are a lot of people who have aestheticized nature as the loving, wholesome thing who really don't want to see the struggle of wild species to simply survive. We're horrified by it. It's hideous, the hideous wilderness. I want to call it the tooth and claw version of nature because that's really what it comes down to. You do what you have to do to survive. What does that say about us? I really like Morton's comment that, quote, if it is to have teeth, eco-critique must be self-critical, end quote. You mentioned the idea of tooth and claw. I think of biting back, not soft nature, but an ecology where everything fights and preys and consumes. All of the quote-unquote wild animals in the book, um, the toad, at one point Isidore finds a spider just living in the dust in his apartment and everybody they get so excited to find a wild animal that's a rare thing to happen but all the ones we see they're technically carnivores or predators then there's Deckard by the end of the book he's not just this machine or this cog in the machine against androids Um, he is we recognize him as exactly that a predator and the Andy or the replicant is his prey By doing that, by turning them into half of the predator-prey equation, the androids have been 
naturalize, but so is this new dynamic between them. They've been naturalized according to that tooth and claw version of nature in a way that starlings never have because they've always been held up to a different ideal. We think of songbirds as delicate and sweet. We don't want to think of them ousting baby birds from the nest box. I like how Mercer doesn't say that an acceptance of the android means that they're not to be hunted. If anything, the predator-prey relationship between humans and androids, while dangerous, it does sort of naturalize the Andes. It reminds us that this, too, is ecology. You know, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about it by the end of the book, even if it appears bleak. I don't know. I'm hopeful that they'll find another way of reaching each other. They, do you mean people and androids? I think so. They're, they're not exactly decreasing the distance so much as reaching across it. There's usually a conflation of the ideas empathy and sympathy. The one empathy is so one-to-one. I've seen it. I've been there. But sympathy... That's actually a huge part of the sublime that we talked about because it lives in the obscure, the things we haven't experienced. I haven't suffered what you've suffered. I haven't experienced this experience you have, but I can imagine it, and I want to be there for you. It's about filling in the blanks. It's the difference between being with someone and for someone, if if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Nearly all of the writing that looks at the novel insists on the importance of compassion and of getting away from pure logic, of closing or bridging the gap. Either way, it's sort of like Morton's idea that we need to establish, or we already have established, intimacy with the strange stranger, which we haven't talked about yet, but I'll explain it very briefly here. Morton prefers the phrase strange stranger to describe the other because it moves toward breaking down that distinction between subject and object that the term other implies. There's no longer a subject position. We are all strange strangers. We are all objects. That's the paradox. The more familiar something is, the stranger it becomes. It's almost like when you see that an animal is looking back at you, looking feels like such a human thing to do. I remember once watching a praying mantis in my garden and it turned its head to look at me. They're, I think, one of the few insects that can actually turn their heads. And suddenly this little creature seemed so strange to me, alien even. I suddenly felt like I was the one being studied. And I suppose I was. Yeah, we think nothing about watching other animals, but they're watching us and it's just, what's going on here? (laughs) Um. I think looking at the future is probably just a very human thing to do. I'm fascinated by the way this two real series keeps pushing forward. It's almost like the more we begin to recognize this world as our world, we keep distancing ourselves from it. In 1968, the story was in 1992, then the movie came out in 1982, and it was set in 2019. Hello, greetings from the future. (laughs) And now the book, when new editions come out, they're in 2021, and on it will go. I mean, the sequel, Blade Runner 2040, 
nine, the movie ca- that came out in, I think, 2015? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but 30 years, it's coming. We're coming for you. <laughs> or not, because it's a continual deference. As Mercer says to Isidore, you're too close. You have to be a long way off the way the androids are. They have a better perspective. It's also like the apocalyptic environmental rhetoric that is so common. Scientists say we have until 2020 to change our ways or the earth is doomed. But then here we are and it's like, okay, we have until 2035 to make drastic changes before the earth is doomed. However truthful it is, it seems to lose its effect after a while. People stop listening. Right, it's almost like when you're exposed to something for so long you can get immune to it or it becomes a white noise that you just are able to block out instead of listening to Mm -hmm. every day. Um, And that can be really harmful because it means that when that time does eventually come, people aren't going to take it seriously. It's like, you said that 10 years ago, so that gives some new meaning to Deckard being a bit of a failed shepherd because the boy who cried wolf, he was also a shepherd who couldn't keep his sheep alive. But we're tired of it. I think that this is the weariness that many people who read eco-criticism are starting to feel. There can be something non-Hippocratic, unhealing about this kind of writing. Now that we recognize this moment, it's not so what, but now what? So it was Mercer who said, you're too close. He was admonishing Isidore for being so mired in the dust that he couldn't see what was really going on around him. And I think that Morton is calling for something different than that because he sees that it isn't effective. We talked about the beautiful soul who seems to opt out in a way. This is really at the far opposite extreme. We're going from, I can't have anything to do with this because I'm meta than thou, as Morton says, all the way over to, we have to act now. We have to make these drastic changes right now or we're all going to die. But then the time comes and we push that date of no return a little farther back onto the horizon. Dick and Morton claim that we've already been living in it longer than we will admit. Dick precedes Morton in redefining what counts as environment. In an essay he wrote about androids and humans, he says that, quote, our environment, and I mean our man-made world of machines, Artificial constructs, computers, electronic systems, interlinking, homeostatic components, all of this is in fact beginning more and more to possess what the earnest psychologists fear the primitive sees in his environment, animation. In a very real sense, our environment is becoming alive, or at least quasi-alive, and in ways specifically and fundamentally analogous to ourselves, end quote. This change isn't going to happen with flying cars and androids. It's already happening in computer games and smart speakers and Fitbits. Maybe instead of moving this apocalyptic tale farther and farther into the future, maybe we should just let it be. Let's let this story take place in 1992. Okay, the world has ended. Now, where do we go from here? We're on I-2, 
iTunes. So if you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast and be notified when we upload new content. You can also find us on our website at ecolitpodcast.wordpress.com. So next month, as an addendum to Season 1, we'll be doing something a little different. Instead of reading and responding to two specific texts, one creative and critical, we will be looking back at Season 1, some of our favorite threads, the genres of eco-criticism we got to read, and how close we got to answering some of the initial eco-lit questions. I'm really looking forward to it. Until then. Until then. <laughs>